American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. To learn how to claim CME credit or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auanet.org university. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to um, the AUA 2022 course in New Orleans, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion in Urology. What do we need to know? We have an impressive uh, panel with us today, um, and as they come and present their slides, they will introduce themselves. Well, hello, friends. Can you hear me okay? Good. Um, well, Linda McIntyre asked me here today to uh, discuss this question. A couple months ago, you put it to me over lunch. What do we need to know? And I thought I'd take a large view of it by considering our identities and their misuse. The operative word here is we. We are homo sapiens, a single, isolated, and unique species on Earth, a single race. Our diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI, attributes to incorporate into our ways of thinking and living? Or is DEI a new field of study, a new branch of our epistemology? Does this mean understanding different or alternative identities, phenotypes, characteristics, points of view, abilities, disabilities, etc.? The question is more than a binary one like black or white, religious or atheist, liberal or conservative, capitalist or socialist, native or immigrant, poor or wealthy, Linda's question is more complex than that. I've got no conflicts, side deals, or scams. I'm not a neuroscientist nor statistician. I do have my biases, probably many more than I recognize. But more importantly than those disclaimers is my belief that the truth matters and the arc of the civilized world is globalized, diversified, and democratic although the daily news regularly tests those beliefs. This is what we know, our epistemology, the taxa of human knowledge. It's here we hope to find the truth. The late E.O. Wilson said, our knowledge is both coherent and diverse. He called it conciliant, referring to the unity of it all. But somewhere in here, we should find diversity, equity, and inclusion important human values as well as a new area of study. The word epistemology is confusing if you don't use it much. It's a way of ascertaining knowledge and truth. It's the investigation of what distinguishes justified belief from opinion. And democracy is itself an epistemology. It questions, crowdsources, investigates, and experiments to find the truth. Democracy is hardly perfect, but it tends to be more reliably correct in finding the truth than the opinions of high priests, pharaohs, autocrats, dictators, kings and queens, presidents, emperors, or celebrities. Predicting the future is the focus of this new Smithsonian exhibit in Washington, D.C. I was recently there. And a sign said, life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. But the past and future are intertwined. The debates of history don't easily end. They play out in today's politics. 
I think that our future will either become one of global stewardship, democracy, and cosmopolitanism, the name of this book in the upper right by Anthony Apaya, or our future will revert to tribalism and tyranny. Let's hope for the former course, although the Ukraine is an immediate test. The past has been largely formed by coherent ideas, beliefs, and people. Our future is destined to be built on diversity of people and beliefs. My larger view of Linda's question is that DEI is a matter of cosmopolitanism, meaning world citizenry, a term dating back to fourth century Greece. As a field of study, the epistemology of cosmopolitanism would encompass political science, psychology, ethics, human rights, law, social justice, and most certainly DEI. So this is a plug to reorganize our universities. Our species has been categorizing each other's identities for millennia, but for little greater good. Perhaps our original sin was annihilation of our hominid cousins, the archaic humans, the Neanderthals, Denisovans, etc. Yet even after prehistoric times, we continued annihilating each other as tribes evolved into cities, then empires that looked at each other across the border as the barbarians or foreigners, the others. That parochial view made it easy to take the lands, the properties, and the personhoods of the others. Colonization of the Americas, Africa, and Asia commercialized and exploited lands with little or no benefit to the native inhabitants who lived on them for millennia. And this persisted even as ideas of human rights were reemerging in Western Europe. The history of human categorization is ancient and ugly. The idea that some of our fellow humans were other than our own species was convenient for tribal mindsets and, and societies built on gender and slavery, but such categorization doesn't work well with modern ideas of humanity and civilization. Downton Abbey, Bridgerton, and the Gilded Age give us easy entertainment, but caste-based societies are not healthy models for the human future. We can't easily disentangle ancestry, ideologies, phenotypes, and racism, but we need to learn to live justly with these concepts and not to other each other. Uh, Rick Ehrlich, my friend and mentor at, from UCLA, recently sent me his new book on the Errolson Holocaust Archive with this visual that he gave me permission to show you. This chart shows badges for political prisoners at Dachau, right, it, it dates to around 1932. And this Nazi categorization of human differences was carried out to the point of absurdity, including the possibility of a Jewish Jehovah's Witness circled in yellow. Should one ever come to exist on this planet, however, the Third Reich was prepared with a badge. Still, our species continued tormenting itself and distressing the mirror neurons in many of us. Civil war, starvation, ethnic cleansing, and sectarian hate abound. Yet, there are finer points of injustice than these horrors. Biologically, Homo sapiens is a single species with many identities that seem to thrive best, although not perfectly, in democratic conditions. 
Even in our ivory towers, we felt the need to identify others, to otherize. At the GMA, General, uh, uh, Graduate Medical Education Archives at the University of Michigan, they showed the intern's photo in 1932, and then in 1977 came the initials B-S-A-O-N, and a trainee could circle his or her, usually his, choice. Black, Spanish, American Indian, Oriental, now we'd say Asian, or none of the others. In 1981, the initials were spelled out and none was replaced by Caucasian. And in 1986, whatever dean was in place dropped the identifiers in favor of just the picture again. Since around 2000, the cards were replaced by Excel spreadsheets with demographic identifiers as prescribed by the US Census terminology. The next will be in 2030. But that fine print got complicated. Look at it briefly, but don't obsess because it certainly will change. This complexity of labeling may be necessary for a multicultural democracy to understand itself, but this may not be the path to social and economic justice. The best path forward is cosmopolitanism rather than tribalism. You may be called upon to explain cosmopolitanism, and some things are difficult to explain, like this Magritte window painting by Anatoly Varvarov of the Ukraine. But cosmopolitanism is easy to understand by taking stock of ourselves with four elementary points. We are here by chance. We have limits as individuals. We value justice, and we equals us. That is, civilization is made up of all sorts of people, all of its people. And let me explain. First point, chance and circumstance determine our individual fates in life. Reproductive urology is central to the matter, but so too are our zip codes, which we just recently heard reference to. An infinity of random events made us who we are, all, billion all eight billion versions of us. Luck and stochastics, to use that chemistry term of randomized uh, behavior, trumped our personal effort, labors, identities, and individual qualities. We are a single genus, race if you must, with myriad identities, phenotypes, and talents. Second point, we don't have much time to get it right. Our lives go by in the blink of an eye, metaphorically, but actually about 500 million eye blinks individually. We have maybe 4,000 weeks on Earth, 70 to 80 years, two and a half billion heartbeats to do our things and get them right, and there's a lot to get right. Third point, an underlying proposition is the expectation of fairness, and this is something even deeper than our human biologic hardwiring. Many other species, elephants for example, expect fairness from their brethren. For us, however, the, the elephant in the story is our manufactured idea of race. My fourth point, we equals us. We are, as John Batiste says, there is no civilization of me's and I's, families, villages, tribes, teams, and societies build civilization. The ideas of the wisdom of crowds and the net value to civilization of diversity are indisputable. That last point, 
must be more widely embraced in healthcare. The National Academy of Medicine recently proposed the quintuple aim for healthcare, including health equity for diverse communities with diverse workplaces. Human civilization and its medical arts allow us to adjust our Gaussian chances. We no longer have to accept a completely random world for humanity. Let's not settle for a world of random chances in education, healthcare, and opportunity, but rather work for the world that we think it should be. We want to, if you want to ameliorate wrongful conditions as a matter of public policy, how finely do you set the mesh of our civil safety net? Who gets a COVID-19 stimulus check? Or an advanced child tax credit? Or Medicaid and CHIP eligibility? What poverty level threshold do you support? Who do you mentor, teach, or hire? Human welfare, opportunity, and happiness should skew to the right. Is that not perhaps much of the meaning of life? Our responsibility for those of us in this room extends beyond the genitourinary tracts of our patients. So to answer Linda's question, we need to know ourselves in our myriad variations, learning from each other and unlearning our biases. The fact of civilization is that we humans come in many identities. As physicians, we know each life deserves its full potential as we mitigate the randomness of illness and disability while fortifying diversity, equity, and inclusion. Our future will be one of continued tribalism and tyranny or cosmopolitanism with recognition and understanding of our human selves. It's not hard to understand why the cosmopolitan path is humanity's better path. So I'll wrap up and thank you. And oh, our last slide isn't there. They didn't upload. But uh, Linda and I wanted to thank our friend and mentor, Edward J. McGuire. And I had a picture, but yeah. we lost it. So take care. Thank you. Can you um, put the slides up for McIntyre, please? So Dr. Bloom's talk was um, something to get us to thinking about our identities and uh, the idea of tribalism versus cosmopolitanism and why diversity is important to avoid uh, some of the strife that we see in history and even in common day. So it's Linda McIntyre. Just by a show of hands, how many in the audience have been uh, required or, or have volunteered uh, to uh, take part in some kind of formal instruction in diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace? And by a show of hands, how many of you feel that the required courses that you've had to take have actually taught you how to operationalize that in your practice?
that yours? It's Mitch Benson, somebody that's not even in this course. Can you click on that and see if our slides come up? Um, was it the first? Yeah, that's it. it Those are mine. Thank you. All right. So, guys, I have to do an uh, education myself uh, with diversity, equity, and inclusion, and just knowing uh, some of the terms and what they mean. And afterwards, we'll, you know, after I go through some of these terms, we'll have a, a group exercise where we can discuss what some of these terms mean to you. Um, so the answer to one of the answers that I have is so, you know, what is it we need to know or why is diversity, equity, and inclusion important in urology is that medical providers from underrepresented minority groups tend to provide care for underrepresented minority groups. They tend to practice in their environments that they came from. And so if we want to eliminate healthcare disparities, then we need to increase the numbers of diverse uh, providers. Uh, more complex diverse groups are more capable of solving complex problems as we are taught to look at problems differently. In research, investigators from diverse backgrounds tend to ask dis different questions. Um, diversity in academic faculty is a component of excellence for medical education. And as a member of a diverse medical team, Majority providers learn successful habits in managing diverse patient populations, meaning that if I'm on a team of Latinx physicians taking care of a Latinx population, I'm going to mimic my Latinx colleagues in taking care of those patients and what's important in getting the best outcome for that particular patient. The definition of race is that it's a political system that governs people by sorting them into social groupings based on invented biological demarcations. What does that mean? Is that scientific evidence shows that humans have many overlapping genetic traits and it's impossible to categorize human populations based on racial typing. Therefore, race is a social construct. It's something that we agree upon and it does not have biological validity. We are all the same. A social group, uh, this is the definition of ethnicity, which is different than race. Ethnicity is a social group that shares common religion, ancestry, language, culture, uh, tradition, beliefs, literature, values, social customs. So you can be of one race and, and have differing ethnicities within that race. A social construct is something that exists not in objective reality, but because of human interaction. And in your group discussions, you'll have some examples of social constructs. This is important because even though I just told you that race was a social construct, it almost seems like I'm contradicting myself. But if you're doing research on healthcare disparities, your groups have to self-identify into these particular groups so that you can compare and contrast in order to get your conclusions. And that's from um, the National Institute of Health. 
also for census.gov when when they do this the um, the census they will tell you that this is the definition of this particular group and then you choose as to how you self-identify and you may self-identify in more than one particular group um, racism is different from racial prejudice hatred or discrimination and is different in the sense that the power elite of one group execute systemic discrimination through institutional policies and practices of society. Racism shapes cultural beliefs and values that support those racist policies and practices. And basically, one of the main things that you have to consider in the, in the idea of racism is power, power of one group over another group. There are different forms of racism, individual racism, it's just a person, what you believe and what you support. And a personal is a public expression of that racism and is often grotesque. Institutional racism are discriminatory treatments, unfair policies. And then structural racism is actually public policies or institutional practices or cultural representations built into the framework of how this society works. So we're talking about healthcare, housing, um, employment, pollution control, things of these natures. And in your groups, then we will ask you or provoke you in a way, in a positive way, beautiful way, to think of some ideas that you can come up with that are, that are representative of these different types of racism. And implicit bias, is an attitude or a stereotype, we all have them, that affect our understanding, actions, and decisions in an unconscious manner and result in discrimination against an individual community. And we have to be careful about them and that's why we try to educate ourselves. A microaggression is a brief and commonplace daily verbal, behavioral, or environmental indignity, whether intentional or unintentional that communicates hostile, derogatory, or negative racial slights and insults towards people of color. And I wanna say that that's a racial microaggression. There are different types of microaggressions. There are sexual or gender microaggressions, but we're focusing in on racial microaggressions. All right. And the other important thing about a microaggression it's not like uh, interpersonal racism where you're just outwardly being derogatory towards another group. Uh, sometimes with a microaggression, it, it is unintentional and it has to be addressed. And it's important that we as physicians and healthcare providers I identify that and address it. And so these are some of the different types of microaggressions, verbal, behavioral, or environmental, and we'll, you can discuss them in your group. Um, Actually, the first one was one that was said to me as I was um, uh, interviewing for residency is, wow, we have another resident in the program who's, much, who's from the ghetto, much like yourself. And I was thinking, does everybody think that of Detroit? <laughs> 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 but, but, you know, and it, you know, in that situation, of course, you can't say anything, you just go, yeah, oh, wow, that's nice. Okay, <laughs> behavioral and environmental. 
And that's the end. So now we're going to break up into groups, one, two, and three. You can choose your group. And then your group leader will talk to you in 15 minutes, introduce themselves, and then we'll talk about what your ideas or feelings of, of different types of racism as well as a micro, and how to address microaggressions. You can put the scenarios in the chat. Hmm? I'll put the scenarios in the chat for the online okay. people. Fifteen, yeah. And I'll, I'll be keeping the time. We have fifteen minutes for this exercise.
Gotcha. Just putting the scenario in. Oh, great. Oh, thank you. Three-minute warning.
our 15 minutes are, are up. That was so much fun. We didn't even get a chance to go to our second one. But I'm so uh, glad that you guys are enjoying it. And now we will have a wonderful, wonderful talk by Dr. John J. Smith. Yep, you're next. You have to um, go to the slide deck that's on the desktop. Is that the one? Yeah, okay. that's it. There you go. Thank you. All right, so I'll spend the next 10 minutes or so, um, and we'll have to move a little quickly to stay on time, uh, going over discussing health disparities and social determinants of health. I have no disclosures. So our objectives today, uh, we'll go over social determinants of health, discuss health disparities and health equity, and connect the dots between social determinants of health and uh, disparities. And then we'll talk about some policies and practices that have led to the disparities that we see today. Because these things did not happen by accident. Pointing at the wrong thing. It's not advancing. There we go. Okay. Okay, so if you'll humor me and pull out your phone, um, we will do a quick warm up. You can scan the QR code um, and just your best guess at um, what percentage of health outcomes uh, do you think are impacted by the medical care that we provide to patients? I love seeing the bars jump around. So in the interest of time, we'll keep moving. So the correct answer is less than 20%. Medical care is estimated to account for only 10 to 20% of modifiable um, contributors to health outcomes. The other 80% or more um, is actually um, has to do with social determinants of health. Those non-medical factors actually impact our patient's health to a much greater extent than the care that we provide. So let's start um, with our patient. We have a 45-year-old woman who presents to your clinic with very bothersome stress urinary incontinence that has worsened over the last few years, and she's requiring four to five thick pads a day. She is obese. She's had three vaginal deliveries, and she saw another urologist who recommended weight loss and pelvic floor PT. 
and asked her to lose weight before they could offer surgery. She has been unable to start physical therapy and she's actually gaining weight. So let's talk about the things that have affected this woman's ability to comply with the treatments that were recommended. The social determinants of health. These are the conditions in the places where people are born, live, learn, work, play, worship, and age that affect a wide range of health, functioning, and quality of life outcomes. The domains of the social determinants of health are shown here, and we'll just pick a couple of them to talk about our patient. So when we look at the economic standpoint, um, this patient is an hourly worker, and when she does not work, she does not get paid. So taking time off of physical therapy appointments is not feasible for her. From an education standpoint, she completed two years of college and had to drop out to take care of her family. So she is limited um, as far as career advancement. Healthcare access and quality, she has a high deductible plan because she can keep her monthly premium low as a result. But that means that out-of-pocket costs are more expensive for things like physical therapy. And then finally, neighborhood and built environment. She does not have access to affordable, healthy food options in her neighborhood. She does not have access to a gym. She doesn't have access to safe places to walk and exercise. So we have asked this woman to do physical therapy and lose weight, but she really does not, is not a viable option for her. This slide just shows uh, some of the uh, different items that fall under those uh, domains of the social determinants of health. And I hope just looking at this breakdown, you can see how these things affect, ultimately affect health outcomes. So let's move on to some definitions. Health disparities and health equity. So first, starting with health disparities. These are preventable differences in the burden of disease, injury, violence, or opportunities um, to achieve um, optimal health experienced by socially disadvantaged uh, populations. And I wanted to throw up the definition of health equity up here uh, so we see um, the distinction between the two. Um, health equity is achieved when every person has the opportunity to achieve their best health. So health equity is essentially social justice in health. Health equity is the principle underlying our commitment to reduce health disparities. And health disparities are the metrics that we use to measure our progress towards achieving health equity. And you know, we hear a lot of um, health disparities are often associated with the social determinants of health and oftentimes the conversation stops there. It just ends at, you know, the reason for health disparities are the social determinants of health. But my question for you is, well, what is the root cause? Because it's not just the social determinants of health, right? We have to dig deeper and keep asking why. And if we look beyond the social determinants of health uh, and ask the question, why are health disparities associated with SDOH? It's because of unequal allocation and distribution of power and resources going back to those domains of the social determinants of health. And if you ask the question, well, why do we have unequal allocation and distribution? 
his structural racism. Um, you know, looking at the definition of structural racism, a system of policies, practices, and norms that both directly and indirectly assigns values and determines opportunity based on the way people look and the color of their skin. So racism creates conditions that unfairly advantage and disadvantage some throughout um, society. And that is the root cause of the health disparities uh, uh, that we see. There's actually a growing body of research that shows that centuries of racism in this country has had a profound and negative impact on communities of color. And when again, going back to the domains of the social determinants of health, structural racism has led to inequities in access to education and healthcare in all of those domains. And that is at the heart of health disparities. So we'll spend the next few slides going over some policies in the US that have led to the disparities that we see. So the first thing we'll talk about is the Social Security Act of 1935. This was signed into law in 1935 as a social insurance program to pay retired workers over the age of 65. An important thing here is that it excluded agricultural workers and domestic workers until the 1950s. So for nearly the first 20 years of the Social Security Act, two-thirds of the African-American workforce was excluded. Let that sink in. So this led to, so this was kind of leading to the, um, some of the gaps we see in generational wealth in 2022. Next policy, the GI Bill. Again, signed by Roosevelt, 1944, to provide financial assistance to veterans returning from the war provided um, access to housing and small business loans and employment and education. And although this was a federal program, it was administered by states. And when you think of the states that still had Jim Crow laws in effect, we know that on the state level, this was not equitable. So the impact on black veterans Black veterans were dishonorably discharged at much higher rates than their white counterparts. Um, I came across a paper um, between August and November of 1946, black, vet, black vets were um, discharged at twice the rates of their white counterparts. And anyone who was dishonorably discharged did not qualify for benefits um, under the bill. They were also steered to more menial jobs and not to college. If they did get benefits for college, they weren't allowed into some colleges because of segregation. Um, and even when they had the financial backing for federal VA loans for homes, um, they were denied mortgage loans by local banks and prohibited from suburban neighborhoods, from some neighborhoods. So again, we see another program that increased the gap in wealth, education, and civil rights. Now we move on to housing. Let's talk about racial restrictive uh, covenants. These were contractual agreements that prohibited the purchase or lease um, or occupation of property by specific groups. And some of them specifically called out um, certain um, racial and ethnic groups. Uh, there was a, a Supreme Court case in 1926 that actually validated their use, and after that case, Corrigan um, versus Buckley 
restrictive covenants went up exponentially. So Kurrigan was a woman in DC who had signed a restrictive covenant the year before and then decided a year later that she wanted to sell her home to a black family. Her neighbors fought it all the way to the Supreme Court. The court actually held it up and ruled in the neighbor's favor and said that restrictive covenants were an individual issue um, and the 14th Amendment only applied to state issues and therefore they could do it as they pleased. So after that, use of these covenants went up until uh, 1948 when the Supreme Court actually reversed. In another case in St. Louis where a black family uh, wanted to buy a home in a neighborhood with, that had a restrictive covenant against Negroes and Mongolian race buying homes in that neighborhood. And that course went to the Supreme Court, um, Shelley versus Kramer, and at that point it was reversed because the Supreme Court at that point said, no, this is a state issue um, and these covenants cannot be enforced. But they continue to be written into deeds until 1968 um, with the passage of the Fair Housing Act um, that prohibited discrimination in housing. Um, but they continued up to then and they're still present in some deeds today. So I came across this racial restrictive covenants project. I live in Seattle, Washington. Uh, this is um, research that's being done by researchers at the University of Washington and Eastern Washington University. Started in 2005 and it's ongoing and they've um, identified and mapped racial restrictions buried in property deeds in over like 20,000 properties in King County um, where I live. Uh, so on the map there, anything that's in red um, is where they found uh, restrictive covenants in the property deeds and the stuff that's in yellow they haven't found in the deeds but it was in newspaper articles and in like realtor announcements. The print is really small so I'll read um, some of the, I pulled, those are restrictive covenants in deeds in my neighborhood. The one on the top says, no person of African, Japanese, Chinese, or of any other Mongolian descent shall be allowed to purchase, own, or lease said property or any part thereof. The one on the very bottom, this property shall not be resold, leased, rented, or occupied, except to or by persons of the Aryan race. This is my neighborhood. And now let's talk about redlining. So redlining is a discriminatory practice uh, that was in place from 1935 through 1968. Um, and you know, this was used to designate parts of, the, of a city as high risk for default on housing loans. Uh, so the Federal Home Loan Bank Board asked this, um, the homeowners loan corporation to map out neighborhoods according to their risk for real estate investments. And what they do, they have these maps where the neighborhoods that were in green were the best neighborhoods. These were usually um, the very afflu affluent um, suburbs. Um, and the blue were still desirable, but not quite green. Um, yellow was declining, and D was considered hazardous. Um, and the, I mean, sorry, the red. And those red neighborhoods were primarily uh, black and Latino neighborhoods, they were considered high risk for default on housing loans, so they generally could not qualify for loans, and if they did, they had significantly higher interest rates. Uh, this map, for anyone who's interested, this is um, an interactive site. 
um, you can, if you scan that QR code, you can type in uh, the name of the city and if there's a um, red line map that exists for that city, they've been digita digitized. I mean, you can see what it looks like for your city. I thought that was a very um, interesting um, exercise. But my next slide here, uh, just, so this I found is the underwriting manual for the Federal Housing Administration from 1935. And this just shows that even the underwriting guidelines for the FHA very directly supported segregated housing. Because um, this stipulated um, that neighborhood stability um, in the presence of incompatible racial and social groups were elements that should be considered during the appraisal and assessment process for qualifying um, mortgage lending. Same language around neighborhood schools. So when, you know, so when I say looking at social determinants of health, people don't end up in some of these neighborhoods by accident. There were policies in place that led to some of the segregated housing we see today. So now the impact, you know, this slide is just bringing it, let's move on to the, the 2020 and 2022, looking at the impact of redlining on our present day situation, because you know, redlining, isn't in existence anymore, but those neighborhoods are still feeling the impact so many years later. Um, when we look at the economic standpoint, um, close to three quarters of the redlined neighborhoods um, were low to moderate income in 2018. Um, Two thirds of them were my, um, minority neighborhoods. Um, from an education standpoint, the schools in those neighborhoods have you know, less per pupil um, revenues, less diverse student uh, populations, lower test scores, and then health. Just looking at the incidence of the chronic diseases that are known risk factors for COVID-19, much, much higher in neighborhoods that were previously redlined. And I'm stuck again. A little help. Oh, going back. All right, so we're bringing us in for a landing. This is our last um, wrap-up question. In case you were wondering, I like polls. <laughs> So last question for you. So which of the following is a stronger predictor of life expectancy? Race and genetics or zip code and neighborhood? Oh, you know what? Hang on, you might be going back to the first question because there's a step I need to do that I did not do. There you go. Please try again. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. There we go. Yeah, it should work now. Oh, definitely. Yeah, so it's actually zip code. Um, there is, um, there was something I came across um, that your zip code, zip code accounts for about 60% of health outcomes. And because when you think about the impact that neighborhood has on access to education, access to healthy food, 
access to safe places to exercise, um, even healthcare access, because some neighborhoods don't have ready access to, you know, preventive care. Um, so it makes sense that zip code is such a huge factor. Not okay, but it makes sense. So this one, I'm a fan of QR codes, too, in case you were wondering. Um, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation has an interactive map that you can actually use to see firsthand how life expectancy changes with zip code. So what I did here, the one that says my neighborhood, I just put in the address for the Safeway down the street from me. And then I picked a Safeway 20 minutes away. And if you look at the top bar in each thing that says my area, the life expectancy in my neighborhood is 87 years. 20 minutes away, it drops down to 81. Just 20 minutes. And then in the next slide, I went just a little further out, 25 minutes away, and it drops to 78.5 years. This is not okay, but it's the reality that zip code has such a huge impact on health outcomes. Whew, so, <laughs> to wrap it up. Um, so health disparities really do reflect social inequities uh, when we go back to the social determinants of health. And structural racism is the root cause of this all. And then we've seen the impact that zip code has um, on, uh, the, um, on health determinants. Um, and I implore you, like, I am passionate about health equity because we know health equity is not the default. It does not happen by default. We have to actively work to achieve health equity. And what I hope the previous slides have shown is that some of what we're dealing with are systemic problems. And systemic problems require systemic solutions. Um, and that involves um, a collaborative approach. So, you know, simple things like screening for unmet social needs, because if you don't recognize that your patient has, does not have the ability to comply with a recommended treatment because of unmet needs, your recommendations are going nowhere. And then trying to get the resources to connect patient with patients with appropriate social services, and I know that's easier said than done, depending on your practice location. But again, this is why there's need for policy and legislation to impact some of what we're trying to do because policies and legislation led to some of the disparities that we see. Um, public, I'm sorry, public-private partnerships are important because somebody has to pay for this stuff. <laughs> it's not free and not cheap. And it's important to engage the communities that we're trying to impact. If we're trying to impact a community, they have to have a seat at the table so we're not bringing unreasonable and unfeasible solutions to them that really are not viable in their um, environments. And a couple things I have up here. The first one is a sample of a social needs uh, screening tool that can be used to just screen patients coming into your clinic um, for unmet social needs. I really like the one on the bottom, findhelp.org. That's a website where if you identify a need and you're at an institution that does not have a program in place, your patients can go to that website and type in the zip code. And on that website, they may be able to find resources for free and reduced services 
to meet some of those needs. So it's not an all-inclusive answer, but it's a place to start. And then my final slide, um, just some book recommendations um, that these are probably my, well, they, my, in my top five, my top three favorite books, especially specific um, to this um, talk. Um, the Color of Law specifically um, was a great one that really um, was a deep dive into the, um, some of the historic policies uh, that have led to segregated housing uh, in the U.S. So thank you so much for your time and attention. Um, uh, and with that, I will uh, pass the mic and pointer on uh, to my colleague, uh, Dr. Jair Santiago Lastra, who will do her thing. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. While the, while the slides come up, we're actually going to zoom through um, a lot of it so that we can stay on time. But by a show of hands, how many of you in taking care of Latino patients in your clinics have had to set up a specific uh, pathway, be it of resources um, in Spanish <coughs> language or specific care navigation strategies to um, take care of and understand the perspectives of your Spanish-speaking Latino patients. Awesome, that's amazing. So. What we're going to discuss very quickly, um, and, I'm, and I'm very happy to, to share my slides uh, later, because I am gonna zoom through some things, is to discuss the concept of heterogeneity in the Latinx population, because Latinos are not a monolith, and it's really important to understand what population we're actually serving, and are we really getting into the Latinos that are underrepresented um, and, and delivering health equity to them? And, We'll review how those social determinants that Dr. Smith explained to us play out in Latinx patients. Very similar, there's nothing new. Um, it's the similar ways in which they play out for our black patients, they pay out, play out for any of our underrepresented patients. It just is very important to remember that there are different degrees of marginalization. And a lot of times, what I what I tell a lot of uh, my students and residents is, if you if you focus something on a person of color, if you focus on your black patient, and you implement strategies that are going to elevate them, in turn, you will elevate women, you will elevate Latinos, you will elevate all of those who are marginalized. And so we're going to discuss how many communities have operationalized measures that deliver care to Latino patients. So these are my disclosures, Latina, obviously. And why, you know, we've discussed why diversity is important. We want to get gain those perspectives. But really, Latinos are a population that's growing. Very soon, white people are not going to be the majority in this country. Latinos are the fastest growing demographic. We want to keep them healthy and productive. We don't want them at home with incontinence. We don't want them at home suffering from diabetes. We want them to work because the baby boomers are getting older and we need taxpayers, we need sources of growth for our country. And so with that growing population, then we have the sobering reality that they're three times as likely as whites to be uninsured. And so what is Latinx anyway? You know, um, my grandparents despise that term. <laughs> they despise it 
they think it's ridiculous, so let's go into it. That you, you've probably heard about these debates on and on. They come up on social media all the time. Latinx is trending. It tends to be used amongst millennials. And so how did we arrive upon this term? And why is it so difficult to name this group of people? Why, why can't we decide on a term? So let's go back to the 1960s and actually look at the census in 1960. You could classify yourself as white or as black. There actually was no designation for Latino or Asian, Pacific Islander, not, none of those categories were included. So how did they decide upon the name Latinx or earlier than that um, on other terminologies? So Mexican groups in the Southwestern United States wanted to form a contingent and they wanted to be able to lobby for political power. But when you're lobbying for a region, there's really not a great way to make the federal government pay attention to you to those issues. So they started noticing that their issues regarding immigration that they were lobbying for, better access to education, bilingual care, bilingual opportunities, were also being experienced across the, the country on the east side by Puerto Ricans and Cubans. And they're like, you know, we have a shared identity, we have a shared language, let's you know, have the Nixon administration group us all together as Hispanic and, and, and galvanize that effort and actually use that political power to get some changes. And so that's how Hispanic came about. It started being used during the Nixon administration, but then obviously we had some problems with that as we started investigating our history of colonization from Spain and also noticing that there's a lot that, that unites us geographically. And so Latino, which came after Hispanic, is actually more inclusive because it includes countries that share geography with us and immigration and experiences. I have friends who are Jamaican and I have a lot in common with them, sometimes more than I have with friends of mine who are Argentinian because we're, we're from the Caribbean and we have that shared island experience. So that's where Latino came from. And then we arrived to Latinx. And you'll notice that I use these all interchangeably. You can too. It's just important to understand what population you're talking about and allowing, for example, a patient to self-identify how they want to and not how you want them to identify. Um, Latinx is a more inclusive term. Spanish is gendered. It's Latino or Latina. And in order to be the most inclusive, you have the X. And then some other people will say, well, that's language imperialism because we don't actually pronounce the X like that in Spanish. And we don't like that English forced upon us because it really did come from American Latinos, not from Latinos who were coming from South America or elsewhere in the Americas. So it was also looked at as like, okay, this is Americans telling us what to do yet again. So there's also the term Latine, which is a little easier to understand, rolls a little better on the tongue. But for research purposes, it's just important to know, I prefer to use Latinx when I am talking about research or pathways for patients just because it includes my non-binary patients really well, and I think that it's important to be inclusive of those who are marginalized. Um, a lot of papers, even here at the AUA, you'll see a lot of presentations about, you know, Hispanic Latino patients as risk factors, but when we discuss those as risk factors, and we're not going to go into as de in depth into the social determinants of health, because um, Jean Jay already did a fantastic job of that, but let's really think about what group we're looking at, because Latinos are not a monolith, and there's actually a health paradox that goes along with that. 
you'll look at one study and Latinos have great outcomes and they actually have better survival for certain cancers and they do, um, they live longer, but then at the same time they have higher rates of diabetes or urgency incontinence for us urologists who are taking care of them. Why is the data like that? Because we're looking at a very heterogeneous population and what we really need to look at is behind that to those other risk factors. Language barriers play a huge role. Um, where you get your health care. So for example, many Latinos work incredibly hard at jobs that don't offer them health insurance. Why? Because in the States, we assume that the best health insurance is going to come from your employer. But not all of us will receive great health insurance from our employer. We already discussed that Latinx is not a monolith. And the US immigration policy also creates certain barriers, especially because they come with a sense of fear. And so even patients who have are, who have adequate immigration status may be fearful um, of losing their visa or being a public charge, and we'll talk a little bit about that as well. These are some better determinants of health um, that, that can be better variables to look at when you're trying to look at a Latino population and understand what risk factors are leading to those health outcomes. And a little bit about Latinos and race, because I think it's really important. Um, there, there were 15 times more slaves brought to Latin America than there were in the United States. We discuss the slave trade, slavery, and the sordid history of colorism in Latin America way less than we discuss it in the United States. It wasn't until 2015 that Mexico actually allowed people to identify as black in their census. And the year that they did that, 1.5 million black people appeared on the census. So Latino, the Latinx identity comes with a background that's very much mired in colonialism, slavery, and discrimination. And so it's really important, again, when investigating the population that you're looking at, where are your Afro-Latinos? How do they identify and really, and really look at that? Because it's going to also be a really important factor. When we look at the Latino population in the United States, the takeaway I want you to get from this slide is, we're everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the migration statistics should suggest that those areas that you see really, really dark on that slide, that's where we are in highest prevalence. And you can see that in many areas, we are the majority. Um, but those areas that are 5 to 10% and lower are actually the areas of highest migration of Latinos because of the high cost of living in the areas that, that are darker on this slide. So it, it's going to become a relevant issue for all of us to really um, learn how the social determinants play out in the Latinx community. I love how Jean Jay explained that for the interest of time, we won't go over it as much. Really, most of the time, the issue with Latinos is culture and language. That seems to be the big barrier for people when they take care of Latinos. Obviously, my biggest hope is that we will all improve our selection and promotion and sponsorship of underrepresented Latinos, Afro-Latinos, Black, urologists and really get them to working with our patients and helping them promote that. But in the meantime, we know that for those of you who may not speak Spanish, that's going to be a big barrier and you want to operationalize that if you don't have 
that skill set. And that's only the beginning. The language barrier can lead to increased length of stay, poor understanding of medications, and a whole host of side effects from that root cause that are going to really affect your health system. So operationalizing this in a lean or Six Sigma kind of way is really smart and effective. So it's not about whether you even believe in social justice, although I hope that you do. It just makes sense because you want these people working, you want them thriving, and you want them to understand the pathways that you have laid out for them. So there is a bunch of barriers that can come into play. And this actually, these slides um, show some patient-related barriers. Um, fear and mistrust is big. We haven't done a great job of making patients trust us because we tell them things with Google Translate that don't make any sense. We don't have good language supporting documents for them. Um, there's the prohibitive nature of expenses for the patient. And so um, tomorrow I actually have um, a session where I'll be discussing why I think, you know, anticholinergics need to go the way of the dodo. And one of the biggest reasons is that I think it's super unfair that a lot of my patients have to be forced to try them in order to get access to medications that would be better for them. That's just insane to me. Um, and then there are provider-related barriers that we can all work to, and, and I think everyone in this room might be, you know, um, preaching to the converted. But let me tell you a little bit about some of the things that work. I also love how Jean Jay went into this. Let me go over two important things in these last few minutes that we'll be discussing. Number one, immigration. Latinos are a highly immigrant uh, population. And especially for those that are the most underserved, there is this huge fear of the public charge. Raise your hand if you know what the public charge rule is. Dr. Kashefi knows because she lives in San Diego, so she knows, she could probably teach this too. So the public charge was rampant during the Donald Trump administration, and essentially it deemed that if you were a high consumer of certain services dispensed by the government, including healthcare, that could be considered a charge against you in your application for citizenship. So guess what? Guess who's not gonna go see a physician? And so um, President Biden reversed a lot of this. It was updated in October 2021, but it is super, super confusing for patients. There's still a lot of fear, and they always express some kind of trepidation to seeking care because they've heard of a family member or someone whose information was released to the government and that actually impacted their ability to obtain citizenship. And so this is the public charge rule today. It only um, qualifies for getting some type of cash assistance or being institutionalized long-term, but it's not well-defined. So if you, for example, want to send a patient to a skilled nursing facility, that might incite that kind of fear um, in them. So Latino patients are simultaneous targets of some of the largest bureaucratic engines that the United States have, immigration and healthcare, and that they both come together to play out in their, in their lives. And so how do we leverage and navigate and help them navigate the healthcare system? So caseworkers, you know, we've all, you know, oh, I need a social worker in my clinic. That would make it perfect because they could help me. That's not realistic. Promotores can be, are, are realistic. And so 
Promotores can be people in the community that you engage with. So if you practice in a location that has a Latino population, and as I showed you, most of you will, there are, there are people you can engage in the community to help you as promoters. A lot of them can do it on a volunteer basis. I have gotten promoters to work. Some of them have been my own patients. They know their community, they know the communities they serve, and during the COVID-19 pandemic, it was promoters that were the most successful at getting people vaccinated and getting people receiving care. And one last takeaway that I'll give you about promotores is that we are promotores. You're Spanish speaking, you're urologists of color, we will promote for you, we will engage with the patient. If you, if you are practicing in a location with a large Latino population, empower your physicians to lead, teach them those skill sets that they need to be those promoters for you, you will not regret it. Um, and so uh, and one of the other um, takeaway mes message aside from you know, making sure that you have some kind of promotion for care and that that will really help enhance um, your care for Latino patients is to remember that Latinos are not a monolith. They are going to come in different um, cultural perspectives, different ethnicities, different races, and it's important to understand if you're a researcher or a healthcare worker that the population you serve is not necessarily going to be what you read in the textbook or paper. So thank you so much. As far as the answer to the question that was asked in the uh, pretest, as far as the percentage, the average percentage of Latinos in the U.S. is 18.7%, but growing. <laughs> And so now I would like to introduce my very good friend and um, big fan of, of him in general, Dr. Downs, uh, who is the um, Dean for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at uh, the University of Virginia. And he's going to be talking to us about some of our task force recommendations. <clears throat> Excuse me. Thanks, Dr. Santiago Lastra, for that nice introduction. Uh, thanks for everyone being here. And to my group back there, give it up for that group. You know it. <laughs> um, so <laughs> we are the coolest group, we hope. Oh, um, my God. Hey. Dr. You know, is in my group. <laughs> <laughs> no, but we ap appreciate it. It's a busy meeting, so we thank you guys for, you know, um, spending some time talking about a really topic that's near and dear to us. and. And thank you to Dr. Smith, again to Dr. Santiago Lastra, Dr. McIntyre, and Dr. Bloom for great talks and for your participation. Um, I see that um, uh, two other folks, um, uh, one just coming in the room and one who did earlier, who were part of the task force, um, Dr. Uh, Effie Chantel Ghani Simmons, who's a stellar <coughs> resident at um, yeah UCLA and won Best Poster today on. Um, some hard work around uh, diversity that um, 
might your might be highlighted in in our pipeline data that um, Dr. Santiago Lastra will present, and then uh, to Dr. Simone Thavisilan, who uh, has been the co-chair, um, and we've been um, like uh, twins um, through this whole process with the task force. So. Um, so what I'll, I'll do is just try to walk you through what the AUA Diversity and Inclusion Task Force has presented to the board and um, kind of uh, what recommendations have, have been advanced forward, which areas we're um, gonna continue to persist in, and to just get a little bit of sense of where things are hopefully headed. Um, let's see, I might have to ask for next slide. Um, so this, this goes back to um, um, 2020, uh, December 22nd is when the task force was actually um, announced. And so um, Dr. Scott Swanson, who's now the past president for the AUA, uh, was a person who really um, kind of galvanized the efforts to, to push this forward. And so I think this is an important moment for us to thank him for his, his foresight, and he's done other things too. While this meeting is very different in terms of you're seeing different awards like mid-career awards um, that we're seeing uh, um, are um, different diverse members being recognized across race, ethnicity, and gender. Um, I have been a part in practice for almost 19 years, and so coming to the AUA many, many years, that has not been the case. So to start to see different faces recognized, different individuals, different time points, um, is, um, is a very kind of uh, breath of fresh air to me. And a lot of that, Dr. Swanson and the board have kind of led those charges, so it's really beyond just the task force. Uh, this is uh, the crew of the task force now. Um, we were um, asked, in this case me, to pick uh, individuals for this task force. So it wasn't an open nomination. It wasn't um, a call for um, uh, people also submitting names. So that in itself meant that the forming of this committee wasn't really up to the highest bar in terms of kind of being inclusive. Um, what were some guiding principles and how these individuals were selected? One is we needed every section of the AUA to be in, uh, in this room. Uh, that way, these will be the ambassadors across the AUA to the different sections. We also wanted to make sure that each subspecialty of urology was represented. So we have uh, female pelvic medicine to oncology to peds urology uh, were um, a part of this group. Um, and in addition, we wanted to make sure that different ethnic groups um, were recognized. Uh, so um, not that it was heavy to one um, ethnic or racial group. And then along gender on purpose, um, I wanted this to be more heavily weighted to be more women than men. Um, and I think uh, this group was really uh, a true labor of love um, and got a lot of things developed. So this is kind of what the task force goal was um, recommended, put forth for us to bring forth some uh, recommendations to the board uh, to increase awareness and understanding around a diverse and inclusive organization. So while we've learned a lot about social determinants of health and the importance of that, we've learned a lot around kind of zip code predicting outcomes and the importance to invest in community health workers, which is really where the real work and disparities gets, um, gets done. 
this is really an internally kind of facing document in terms of how do we support each other and grow a diverse workforce. That's one arm of how you uh, address and continue to advance health equity. Um, these are objectives, and I'll just kind of leap through some of these. So um, we, we did a fair amount of work. So we um, had 15 meetings. This was all in the Zoom. So many of us met each other for the first time in person last night when we had a task force um, uh, dinner. And it was kind of weird because we all knew each other, but we didn't really. Um, so, um, but it was really, um, really amazing. Um, we um, level set what does DNI content mean? Um, we met with the different um, stakeholders across different AUA uh, areas to um, garner what is being done or what was ongoing in order to put our recommendations um, forward. I thought it was important, a lot, my experience in diversity, equity, and inclusion work is that a lot of people are, um, they get really uh, kind of in passionate and uh, use the word fired up and like, let's go save the world. And I, I feel like they're, um, they're like running out onto a football field, so to speak, and they, they run into the goalpost and they don't really know where they're headed or why they're doing what they're doing. And so um, you kind of felt that, not really the tension amongst this group, but a little bit of the tension from maybe just like, hey, what are we gonna deliver? That um, I had to remind myself to say, let's really understand and unpack what a, about DEI like you all are today and have done well before today in terms of what are themes and things. And so we looked at things from um, individual identity. How is that formed in us as individuals? There's good literature around that. There's good literature around racial identity and how that's formed. Uh, we looked at uh, something called a cultural clash, which is actually popularized by a professor at Stanford and how his culture is kind of coming at us um, from multiple areas and whether this be cosmopolitanism that uh, Dr. Bloom brought up, um, how do we kind of um, you know, identify ourselves within a rapidly changing world? And you can see other areas that we looked at. But I think the common theme was, I was hoping is that we would gain insight into that the same things that make me feel othered or put on the outside of a group uh, based on my religion or my gender or my race or ethnicity or my age or my ableism, whether I'm disabled, they're very similar things. And so I was hoping that as a group, while we came from different backgrounds, that we would see that common thread and then move forward together. And I think that's really important in a couple different ways as what will play out most likely in the future is there'll be kind of strong voices that put gender um, diversity in, uh, forefront. I think that's important. I'm, I'm, my, my, I'm very forthright in that. But there'll also be some that will put race and ethnicity, but they may not put both. And I think it's really important to do both. Otherwise, we're going to have very different outcomes. And this really um, is what Dr. Santiago Lastra was bringing out. And hopefully you guys picked up on that was um, when you actually look at marginalized communities and you aim in this one, you talked about black communities, that if you fix the issues and uh, concerns there, then everyone gets better. And it's kind of a little bit of the kind of things like Black Lives Matter and all these things that we can really kind of spin out of control and go, oh, all lives matter, blue lives matter, everyone lives matter. But if you start at that basic one there, then you'll see that everything, and then when you look at kind of growing diversity in uh, medical school populations, actually there's some other good data to show that if you focus more on a race, ethnicity, African-American, 
kind of um, focus that that actually leads to increased numbers of Latinx or Hispanic uh, groups, of Native American groups, of black groups, of everyone and women. Um, and, uh, and we've seen in the Coca-Cola model and things like that when they shifted from a diversity ethnicity model that was more race ethnicity based and went to gender that a lot of their losses were along the lines of, of race and actually there's some unfortunately bad lawsuits around those things. So these are our kind of um, just and inclusive um, kind of areas that we focused on. I just want to be mindful of our time and, um, and these were the areas that we focused on. So you could ask, well, um, hey, Tracy, why did you guys pick these? These are actually the same areas that the American College of Surgeons um, used as their major domains when they um, uh, launched their document. So I thought as a surgical subspecialty, it made sense. Uh, we thought as a group to consider having similar domains so that at least in the surgical fields, we can kind of learn from one another. We then talked about what are areas for us to say that the, the AUA, these are things you can control. These are areas you can influence and these are zones or areas of concern that you should raise to concern to maybe those who can actually control those decisions. And then this is kind of a busy slide. I'm not sure if you guys can, can see it all. If we can, I'll maybe just stay on this slide. So we put forward 14 recommendations. Um, this has actually um, been shared in AUA News, um, and it was actually, um, this is this being recorded? Yeah, so, yeah, okay, thanks. So, um, yeah, so, <laughs> gotta do that every once in a while. So, um, yeah, so this was, um, was actually a little bit of contention in terms of when you go into situations with the board in terms of what is actually public knowledge. And, and for those who've been on guideline panels or things of that, sometimes those um, conversations actually are, are still held private. We felt it was really important for advancing the field forward that our deliberations and what the final recommendations were that were put forward were all shared um, publicly with, with our membership and you all in the room. So we looked at things from create a formal uh, standing committee, um, which um, these things are being voted on or ratified at this meeting, to um, uh, look at a chief diversity officer position to be established, um, to promote transparency around how you advance in leadership, um, and then also to create a, a DEI award to recognize um, enhanced diversity efforts. And you can see the other things around uh, diversity in the workforce. I think we've covered structural competency in terms of um, Dr. Smith's talk. And then uh, advocacy is really, I think, that next area is what are we really doing for our population? So um, should we have a guidelines that's specific to African-American men around prostate cancer? When we come to a meeting like this, are we looking at who um, actually um, are the caterers or the food service or things? Are we looking at those being diverse uh, groups so that they can have economic wins or gains with where we go? Are we doing outreach and doing prostate cancer or other type of talks? in the communities that we come. Does New Orleans leave and be better because the AUA was here? Does it leave and it's, it's no different or hopefully not, it's worse. Um, so those are kind of the areas that we um, have done and, um, and uh, hopefully we'll uh, continue to move forward uh, along these areas, so thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Tracy. I just wanted to uh, 
take a little break and give an example of being in residency at Henry Ford. We have a large Arabic population in Detroit. And when Tracy said we want to advance diversity and gender, race, and religion, uh, when I, I won't tell how old I am, but when I was in residency, when you're on call, all the residents had one call room, the girls and the boys. So it didn't matter how tired you were. It was two bunk beds in there. You just went in there and laid down and went to sleep if you had an hour or two. And a guy might come in and get in the bed above you or across from you. And I'm sure it wasn't that different in many other residencies across the country. But when the Muslim women joined general surgery, they did not go for that, okay? And afterwards, I got my own call room. <laughs> <laughs> And now we'll have Dr. Yahir will come back and talk about things that we can do in the education pipeline to increase diversity. So um, a very important acknowledgement before I start um, this talk is that there's actually one uh, member of our, of our pipeline group that was not allowed to participate in this course. She's the subject matter expert, um, Chantal Ghani-Simons. She's actually the one that has really done the heavy lifting with this, and, and it should be her presenting this right now. Unfortunately, she's still a resident, and so um, I just want to make sure to give her that credit um, because her, her work and the work of, of others has really um, provided some, some much needed uh, galvanized effort to, to help with the pipeline. Because this, this is coming from some of her work, actually. The, the results are really sobering because if you look here, this is, this is a slide that shows you the educational pipeline for underrepresented academic urologists. And you can see that as they advance through that pipeline, the numbers grow increasingly, increasingly smaller, not that they were um, that big to begin with. And so when you compare their numbers represented within the U.S. population itself, you can see that as they advance through the pipeline, those numbers dwindle. This is actually a slide that I was very honored to co-author uh, with a few of my other, you know, partners in justice. Uh, particular, this slide was designed by Dr. Randy Vince, who I say is my favorite shake, table shaker. Um, he it has been very vocal in expressing that the reason these pipeline efforts fail and have been failing over the course of many decades is that we're not really addressing the issues that need to be addressed. And I'm gonna show you some data that shows that. So this is the total number of practicing urologists and percentage of female practicing urologists in the workforce from 2014 to 2020. So those numbers are slowly growing. They're definitely not growing fast enough, but what I will say is gender equity is what is advancing the fastest, and that's wonderful. Hopefully, you can leave today really motivated to make sure that it's not just uh, women or white women that are advancing through that pipeline, but that actually we've implemented targeted strategies to help everybody advance. And this is something that is much similar to those lean trainings and Six Sigma, there are some metrics and foundational principles that work, and they just need to be implemented. And so this shows you 
the change in the black urologic workforce and the Latino urologic workforce. And as you can see, there really isn't much of a change. These are the specialties organized by the largest per percentages of active female residents. So gender equity, certainly we have a long way to go as urologists. And then when we look at black and Latinos, the number is even more sobering. So diversity of our specialty is lagging by a lot behind the nation's diversity. Like I said, minorities are the source of growth for our population. And there's disproportionate representation and disproportionate care. Black and Latinos and indigenous physicians tend to care for those communities of color. They tend to care for underserved communities. They're more likely to accept Medicaid and uninsured minority patients. And representation of those physicians matter. For example, this is a really wonderful New York Times article that did a good job of putting these terms in, into layman's terms. And it really has to do a lot with trust, but it also has to do a lot with the fact that these physicians understand the communities that they serve. And it's not just, it, we're not advocating for black physicians to merely take care of black patients. We're advocating for black people to lead the charge in determining what needs to be done to improve care for their black patients. We want Latinos involved in the care of Latino patients and helping lead a team that can deliver the best care. This is a team approach. The data is compelling. Representation matters and there's tangible benefits to diversity. That is unquestionable. And so when we look at medical student representation by sex, race, and ethnicity between 2002 and 2017, we've been, like, like we asked at the beginning of this talk, how many of you have attended a DEI course? Everybody raise their hand. Everybody knows, you know, what we're talking about here. We've been talking about microaggressions and pipeline efforts and all of these things ad nauseum for years, but diversity efforts fail because they're not implemented with the foundational principles. A small grant to attend a sub-internship, a mentorship program in a corporate workforce, um, you know, all of these types of, of diversity activities, writing a diversity statement, none of these things are gonna produce tangible benefits if we don't have them with foundational pr principles. So if, if anyone in the audience is interested in, in participating, why, you know, does anyone have a reason or, or a theory as to why diversity has efforts to improve diversity largely stalled? Cost, that's a, that's a great one. There's data that shows that eventually it actually saves money because again, you get leaders in the team that understand the populations and can bring in the solutions. But yeah, diversity programs cost money. Um, and so that led, leads us to thinking, what are some best practices that we can use to improve representation in urology? But not everyone here in the audience is gonna be a part of an academic center but there are things that you can do wherever you are to make sure that your underrepresented physicians, your physicians of color are supported and look to these foundational principles. So there's the principle of transparency. We just talked about that right now. Um, we need to know the data in order to be able to understand that the data is very sobering. So look, for example, let's look at, these are the top 20 medical school ranked by percentage of medical students graduating from that institution who identify as minorities. And this is also coming from Dr. Ganey Simon's work. One of the things that we can see here 
is that many of these programs that are graduating a large, large number of underrepresented physicians, black physicians, Latino physicians, they don't have a home urology residency program. So how are we gonna expose those kids to a mentor, to research, to rock in their sub-eye? You know, out the gate, they're graduating all these students. It's a treasure trove of talent that we are not tapping. And so one of the things that we've talked about is being intentional about, about looking and creating those foundations. One example that we worked with on the task force was creating a pipeline project and exposing, engaging, preparing, and matching students from these programs without a home urology residency program and providing them with those different metrics to be able to be successful. Um, Urology Unbound is a nonprofit, for example, that has been doing exactly that. Let's see if I can go back on my slides and really show those foundational principles because I think it's an important takeaway. Transparency and looking at your data and seeing that over decades you haven't really made a dent in improving diversity. Having an unbiased search for talent, so implicit bias training, looking at how you review applications for your employment, how you review applications for a disease team leader or for um, a medical director role, um, making sure that there are continual networking opportunities across the course of years, not for a single opportunity. So giving a scholarship for a sub-I, that's fantastic but engaging someone else to have continued mentorship of that, of that award would be even better. And so you give that continual networking opportunity and then having mentorship that's engaged and that's prepared to deal with the particular struggles of being underrepresented. And so let's advance through here and then come to our different takeaways. So for example, we have a pipeline project that has actually taken those foundational principles and implemented them. This was published by my very good friend and colleague, Chanel Wilson, um, the R. Frank Jones Urology Interest Group, um, also part of Urology Unbound, which is a nonprofit, the only nonprofit that's dedicated to improving representation of black and Latino medical students has a primary aim to use those collective resources to expand and implement initiatives for exposure of those students into the pipeline. And the, the reason that programs like this, this program has only been in effect for 24 months or maybe a little more than that, and already they have successfully matched 60 um, members into urology residencies. And I think one of the reasons Chanel is very successful is that she's taken very simple, lean strategies of being transparent about her work and what, it, what it's about, of providing that sustained exposure to urology over a time frame, not just in a moment, um, providing those um, applicants with a continuous network of exposure to urology, and then also making sure that the volunteers that she works with are trained mentors who understand and are even sometimes a part of those communities. And so those four foundational principles, when applied to any sort of pipeline program, can be successful. You take one away and the entire house falls apart. 
So obviously one of those is understanding our implicit bias. It's something we talk about a lot. I'm not gonna go over it specifically now, but as a foundational principle, we all have it, and we all need to look at applicants by taking away that bias. There's been a lot of talk of how we review applications, and I think that's incredibly important. So what exactly is good mentorship? It includes many different uh, domains that we need to look at. And the bottom line is none of us are gonna be excellent mentors, but we all need to make sure that through those programs there are feedback opportunities to ensure that those who are in the pipeline perhaps have entered in a successful way through some kind of grant program perhaps, but then only to lose them years later when they join an academic practice and are burnt out and unsupported. So that longitudinal aspect to it really um, is important to the mentorship, as is sponsorship. So not just giving people advice, but actually sponsoring them when they do something that's amazing, making sure the world hears about it. Great minds think differently. We discussed that today. Um, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you guys about these efforts. One last thing is, um, through the work of Chanel, through the work of Chantal, um, the University of California has actually taken the prospect program and implemented it. So now as a UC-wide program, we will be taking on medical students when they enter their M1 year, begin to mentor them in research, and then continue to invite them through paid research opportunities, paid sub-internships, when they are attending a school that does not have a home urology residency program. So it's very implementable. It does cost money, um, but I think the investment in, in these talented individuals will, play will pay huge dividends in the future. Thank you. Well, that concludes our course, and we want to thank everyone for attending today. Um, does anyone have any questions before we leave? You can come up to the mic. Caroline Dowling from Melbourne in Australia um, and the AUA were very kind to ask us to make a video on diversity so that's on AUA TV if anyone wants to see it. There are two comments that I've got about your fabulous program and energy. First of all um, there's some corporate work now that looks at the fact that we end up doing a lot of housekeeping in this space and it's done by people who are tending to be in these minority groups and that's detracting from the work that they should be doing clinically or in the corporate sector. So I think that's something that we need to consider. And the other thing which came up um, in uh, our college meeting recently is that there's no flexible training in America um, and that's something that we've started in Australia and when we talked about it with an American colleague they were like, what? Nobody can do flexible training so that's something else that's worth considering to keep women um, in the specialty. Thank you. I saw the video on AUA TV and it's awesome. Um, one of the things that we talked about in the that I included in the instructional booklet was that it is very difficult to do your job and do DEI at the same time. And it may be beneficial to have an outside DEI specialist come in and give strategies and actually train your team as to things that they can do to improve diversity, improve diversity with the team. Um, any other questions? I just wanna add that um, one of the things about pipeline that I'm included with as far as on the, um, the DEI task force is that 
I see pipe, I see prospect is what I'm talking about as a template. So when you look at prospect, any program, whether it's a clinical residency program or whether it's a society, uh, our Frank Jones or any other society, uh, can take that prospect template and apply it with the necessary funds. And if you don't have the funds, you can use resources available through the AUA to fill in some of those blocks for uh, mentorship, uh, summer internships and things of that nature. So I think it's phenomenal because it's something that can be applied and hopefully the AUA will take it on and make it a national program. But in the interim, it's a template that many people can use to institute at their in, uh, place where they work, you know, and it can be used by different organizations. Does anyone have any other questions? Well, thank you for attending our course and have a great AUA.